Are you familiar with the, the verse John three sixteen? I would imagine if you go out on the street, maybe go to your business or wherever you work, and you begin to ask someone, see, are, are you familiar with any verse in the Bible? I would imagine that most people would probably come up with John, uh, the scripture, John three sixteen. Um, you, you go to any uh, sporting event, a lot of times you see the word John three sixteen, or somebody standing there with a sign. Anybody remember the rainbow man? Remember the rainbow guy? Uh, that guy went to jail, but um, he did have John 3.16 decked out in rainbow color, and he used to carry the sign around. He's the one that kind of started it. Tim Tebow would put it underneath his little eye, eye mask right here. Uh, Forever 21, a clothing store. They had it stamped for God so loved the world. They had it uh, stamped on some of their clothing line. Um, in and out burgers underneath their cups, uh, inconspicuously kind of around the bottom of the cups, they had uh, John 3.16 put down there. Um, any, does anyone... Follow country music. Is anybody country music here? Oh, there we go. Um, Keith Urban uh, has a song, and it's called uh, John Cougar, John Deere, and John 316. And here here is the lyrics, all right? Uh, I'm a child of a backseat freedom, baptized by rock and roll, Marilyn Monroe in the Garden of Eden, never grow up, never grow old, just another rebel in the great wide open in the boulevard of broken dreams. And then he says this. And I learned everything I needed to know from John Cougar, John Deere, and John 3.16. Isn't that interesting? John 3.16 has something to teach us about life. Ruth Graham Lotz, Billy Graham's daughter, said this about John 3.16. John 3.16 is the North Star of the Bible. If you align your life with it, you will find your way home. I love that. If you align your way with John 3.16, you will find your way home. For those of us who embrace John 3.16, we know that we have found our way to our true home. So what I want to do this morning is simply this. I want to speak on one verse. In light of eternity, in light of our call, in light of John 3.16, I simply want to speak on one verse. And then I'm going to, hopefully in a couple of weeks, I want to come back to this. But what I want to do this morning, in this idea of contending for our faith, this idea of fighting for our faith, what I want to do is I want to look at what it means to perish. The Bible says that Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believeth him will, will not perish but have everlasting life. And, and what we want to do is we want to look at what the Bible has to say about perishing. You know, most people believe in some kind of afterlife. I was visiting someone on Tuesday, and we were sitting there talking. We were having this conversation, and the gal mentioned that her, her mother had passed away. And she had gone to heaven. And I was kind of curious. Was it being snarky? Was it kind of being rude? But, but I was curious, you know, what did she believe? thinking, well, maybe she has some kind of element. And I said, well, well tell me about your mom. How, how do you know that she's in heaven? And she just simply said this, well, that's where you go when you die, right? Hmm. That's what she believed. You just, you just go there when you die. It doesn't matter how that you live. And, and the reality is, a lot of people have that thought that when you die, we automatically have this privilege of, of being able to go to heaven. A bunch of years ago, a guy by the name of Billy Graham died, and I was traveling up Highway 70 East, and I was heading to the office here, and I looked over, and there was this sign on the, that constantly changes. And it had a picture of Billy Graham, and it has his birth date, his death date, and then it had two words underneath it. And the two words simply said this, gone home. Gone home. Born, died, and, and, and now he is at his true home. And the Bible says this, is it appointed for man to die once, and after this comes judgment. You only get one shot at life. 
And, and if there's this thing called heaven, and if there's this thing called heaven, and life is incredibly difficult and challenging, and we are challenged you to look at how we live, shouldn't we know if it's the beauty of heaven and, and the, the horror of this place called hell, if, if there's a heaven and a hell, shouldn't we want to know about it? Wouldn't we want to know that we want to stay away from it? Shouldn't we be able to evaluate our lives so, so that we don't go there? I would hope so. The question of eternity is an absolutely important one. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believeth him should not perish but have eternal life. That's what the Bible says. Jesus came so that we would not perish. And what I want to do is simply this morning is this. I, I want to look at what this idea of perish means. Max Lucado looked at John 3.16 and he said this, and this is where I got the title for my sermon from Max Lucado. He said this, in this verse, in John 3.16, there is a one-word caution sign. Don't perish. Don't perish. It's a one-word caution sign. So the way that we live our lives is incredibly important. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at this verse in light of, of three questions. Number one, what does it mean to perish? Number two, does, does perishing square with God's love? Does perishing square with God? See, there's a lot of people that walk away from their faith. And, and one of the issues that they have is they have the issue of hell. It's a really, really difficult doctrine for them to embrace. Why would a good and loving God, why would they want to, why would God want to send somebody to hell? And, and what it does is it just pokes a hole into our understanding of the nature and the character of God. And what they want to do is they want to destroy the very foundations of the Bible and our future in heaven with being with Jesus. So the subject of, of heaven and hell is a very, very important subject that we have. So the question is, how does perishing square with a, a good and loving God? The final question I want to do is this. What, what are we supposed to do? How do we contend for our faith in the midst of all this? How are we to live our lives? So that's kind of where we're going to end up this morning. And let me just begin by saying this. This is not a fun subject. It's not an easy subject. But let me ask you something. Do you, do you avoid all the hard subjects in life in your family? If there's a hard thing going on in a relationship within a a husband and wife? Did you just say we're going to ignore it? Or what about your family? Or what about other things? No, no, we have to deal with, with hard things. And, and the Bible talks about this thing called heaven. It talks about this place called hell. And, and we need to not be afraid to look at what the Bible has to say. There's a Catholic theologian named Peter Krepp, and this is what he said about the subject. He said, of all the doctrines of Christianity, hell is the most difficult to defend, the most burdensome to bear, and the first to be Abandon. Nobody likes this subject. It's a very, very difficult subject. But if we're going to talk about God's love and the wonder and the beauty of who God is, we, we can't just pick and choose what we want. We can't pick and choose the attributes of God that we like. In, in line with God's love is his justice. In line with God's love is his, his, his holiness and his perfection and, and the way that he created us. And we can't just say, well, you know what, God, I'm going to pick and choose what I want about you, and I'm going to choose to live my life the way that I want to. We can't do that. The Bible will not allow us to do that. And so what I want to do is I want to look at this subject of hell this morning, and then a couple of weeks come back and look at John 3.16 in light of eternity and spending eternity with Jesus. So let me just pray. Father, this is just an easy topic to, to run over and to ignore, and we don't want to do that. Father, I want to be faithful to your word. I want to be faithful to the text. I want to be faithful to who you are and what you've done for us. And well, the, the, the reality of, of John 3.16 is that you come to offer us something beautiful and something wonderful, forgiveness of our sin, 
a new way to live eternity with you in this wonderful, wonderful place called heaven, reunited with all of our loved ones of faith and, and worshiping at your feet, Lord. We thank you for that. And, and Lord, in, able, in order for us to get there, we've got to look at this subject of what it means to perish. So I ask God that you would open our minds and our hearts today just to listen to the word of God and what you would have to say, that this would give us confidence in our faith of knowing that we will spend eternity with you because we put our faith and our trust in you. And God, it would also drive us to boldness and courage to live for you and proclaim your word. So Father, I ask that you speak to us in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So here's our text. John 3.16. Why don't I just read it together? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So here's the first question. What does it mean to perish? You know, Jesus talked about heaven and hell. You know, one person said that, that about a third of all the teaching of, of that Jesus, um, they, it was about eternal judgment, about separation from God. It also talks about two-thirds of the parables that Jesus spoke were about resurrection and judgment. So when we look at the life of Jesus, Jesus spoke about hell. He spoke about a danger. He spoke about a judgment and spending eternity away from the presence of the Lord. So according to Jesus, John 3, 16, the people are in danger of perishing. And this had to be an, an absolute shock in John three sixteen to Nicodemus. See, when you look at John chapter 3, it begins with a rabbi, a teacher, a known one who knows about God, and he knows about Yahweh, and he knows about faith, and he knows about the Jew. He, he knows all about that, and he comes to Jesus, and he wants to have this conversation with him. And Nicodemus, there's no doubt Nicodemus knew what it was to, to know God, to embrace God, to live for God. And it must have been a shock to him to hear these words that, wait a minute, there's a way that a person can perish? But we needed to believe in Jesus? And when Jesus uses the word perish, he's talking about physical death. He's talking about that we're all going to die. We're all going to die. You know, I saw something really sad this past week. You know, Mike Shannon is closing out his career. Today will be probably his last broadcast. They were doing a little expose on him, and I watched him walk into the stadium. He's just a different man. They have to help him walk in. He got someone on his arm, and if you listen to the broadcast, you can tell he's changing his voice. He's not as sharp. Why? Because we all die. We all get old, and, and our bodies break down, and we all die. And, and there's, a, there's a sense here that, that Jesus is talking about physical. Yes, we are all going to one day die, and, and that means how are you living your life? How am I living my life? Am I living my life in light of what's going to happen in eternity? Because that's what the text is implying here. There's a deeper understanding of the word perish. Perish is kind of put alongside the idea of eternal life. In other words, yes, I'm going to live forever if I embrace Jesus. If I look to Jesus, if I, if I put my faith in my trust, I'm going to live forever. But there's also this idea of spiritual death, of living away from the presence of the Lord, spending eternity away from the presence of the Lord in a bad place called hell. And Jesus spoke of that. Matthew chapter 10, verse 26 Jesus is getting ready to send the 70 out. He said, listen, I, I want to give you some instructions. I want you to go out, and I want you to go out two by two, and I want to give you some instructions. And I want you to understand, as they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. They're, not everyone's going to embrace this message. Not everyone's going to like this message. That's the warning he gave. And, and notice what he said. There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will 
not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, notice what he says. Be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in a place called hell. Listen, the Bible says that one day in the future, nothing from, is going to be hidden from his sight. Nothing is hidden from their sight right now. He knows all, sees all. And one day we're going to stand before a holy God and we're going to have to give an account for the way that we lived. It is appointed for a man to die once and this comes judgment. And what Jesus is reminding us and reminding the people that there's something really, really bad if we don't square our life with who he is and what he's called to do. It's a place called hell. Yes, physical death is, is really bad, and, and we don't like to experience that. And, and there's this separation, there's this really difficult idea of physical death, but there is something, something worse. The Bible calls it hell. It calls it eternal death. It's, it, it, Jesus is speaking about a place that's in horrible, horrible places. Fear the one who can send you to a place separated from him for all eternity, a place called heaven. A place called hell. Matthew chapter 22, Jesus doing the same thing. He's, he's telling a story about the kingdom, a story about what the future is like. And, and notice Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 22. A parable, and he's using the image of a wedding feast. You know, we're all familiar with a, a feast at a wedding. Notice what he says. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was there not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? man was speechless. The king told his descendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness while there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus was telling a parable. Jesus was telling a story about the future, about a wedding feast. And he's, he's talking about being prepared, about dressing appropriately, about being prepared, listening to who he is, the words he would have to say, the miracles he would do, and responding appropriately. There's, a, there's an appropriate way to respond to the revelation given to us. So yesterday, Anna and Carl got married. And imagine, if you will, I had a small part in the, in the wedding. I had an opportunity to share a couple of things. Imagine if everyone's decked out and everyone's getting ready to do all these wonderful things. And it's a beautiful wedding. And I show up, short pants, flip-flops, and a tank top. And I just show up to do my part. Oh, wouldn't people look at you and scratch their heads and go, what is he doing? Does he have no respect? Does he have no respect for the for the wonder and the beauty of this moment? What, what, what are you doing? Go, leave, you're, you're not welcome here. Jesus is reminding us that there is an appropriateness to responding to who he is and the revelation given to him. And, and what this, this text in Matthew 22, 3, verse 13, what it does, it teaches us three things about hell or what it means to, per, to perish. And I want to look through this. First, verse, thing, verse 13 means this. It means exclusion. Remember what he said? It said, throw him out. Throw him out where? Throw him outside. In other words, there's an inside and there's an outside. Throw him outside of the bounds. There's a separation. There's a chasm. There's this separation of being outside the love and the beauty and the wonder of who God is and what he's prepared for us in the future. There's outside. There's a barrier. There's a chasm. And when people are not dressed appropriately, when they, when they don't respond appropriately, and this is not about just what you wear, but about responding to the revelation given to us, we are outside of God's love and bounds, if you will. That's what Matthew chapter 22, verse 13 teaches us. You're outside. 
Paul, a, a Jewish man who knew about the kingdom of God, who knew about righteousness, who knew about judgment, who knew about the resurrection. Notice who he wrote in 2 Thessalonians about this idea of perishing, about this idea of being outside. 2 Thessalonians, one of the first verses I learned as a Christian, says this. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. What sends a person outside when they don't know God and they don't respond to the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel message of who he is and what he's come to do. And it says these people will be outside. Where are they going to be outside? From the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. Do you realize that every day, every day we see a measure of God's grace. Every day we see the wonder and the beauty, the attributes of God on display all around us. The beauty of the, of the sunrise coming up, the sun going down, in, in a, probably a, a couple of weeks, the leaves on the, on the trees are going to turn and we're going to see and experience this wonderful thing called fall. If you've ever been uh, riding around or driving around on the mountains and when, it, when all the leaves begin to change, there's this wonderful beauty array of, the, of gold and yellow and green and it's just a wonderful display. Every day you and I experience this wonderful measure of God's grace. And I'm surrounded by people who love me and care for me. And fight for me. I have a wife who loves me. I have a family who loves me. I have grandkids who love me. I've got a 10-year-old dog by the name of Leo that worships the ground that I walk on. Only because I feed him. You know, we all experience a measure of God's grace, this this thing, this common grace. To be in a place called hell is going to be a place separated from all of that. The wonder and the beauty of God's creation. It's a horrible place. Hell is separation from God and everything that's good. But there's second thing that we can learn from verse 13 is this, from this parable. Hell is about darkness and torment. Darkness. As a kid, was anyone ever afraid of the dark? I was afraid of the dark. Remember you wanted the nightlight in? Or sometimes your mom and dad gave you a little, a little flashlight you could put beside the bed where you could turn it on and off every once in a while. There's a different kind of darkness that's described here. A couple of years ago, I went to Onondaga State Park, and they have a cavern there. And you kind of walk down into the cavern, and you take your flashlight, you walk down the cavern, and you get down to the bottom, and then the, the, the park ranger says this, okay, now turn off all your lights. You ever been down there? That is frightening. There is a deep darkness down there that is eerie, that is frighteningly scary about being down there. And what Matthew chapter 22, verse 13 talks about, it talks about darkness, about being outside of God's goodness and God's grace. This outer darkness, a place of torment. See, a lot of people are familiar with John chapter 3, verse 16. But what they do is they forget that three verses later, in John chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus highlights what it means to be in darkness. We love John 3, 16 because everybody wants eternal life. But John 3, 19 talks about what it means to be separated from God and everything that is good. There's this darkness, there's this absence of light in the soul of each human being. John chapter 3, verse 19, notice what it says. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness 
instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. We all have this propensity deep inside of our heart and lives to like our sin. We rebel against a righteous, holy, and perfect God and the way that we live. We want our way. We don't want to say, God, have it your way. We want our ways. We want the autonomy that we have. And that autonomy, that darkness inside of us is called sin. Our hearts rebel against God's righteous standard. And we choose to walk away from him and think that we are knowledgeable, that we know better than what God would have and what God revealed, would reveal to us. Psalm 27, verse 4, David says this. One thing I ask of the Lord, and this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Heaven is a beautiful wonderful place, free of all the pain, the suffering of the world. And we are going to fall at our feet and worship King Jesus for who he is and what he's done for us. We're going to glory in the cross and the fact that we are going to be free from all of our sin. And what the Bible says is the opposite will be true of those who continue to rebel against him and his righteous standard for our lives. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells the story of a rich man in Lazarus. And what the rich man and Lazarus reminds us of is, is the, of the torment of hell. Of the torment of hell. Luke chapter 16, verse 23, notice what it says. There's this contrast of characters. There's the rich man and there's Lazarus. The rich man is in hell. Lazarus is in heaven next to Abraham. And, and notice the response. Notice what Jesus says in verse 23. In hell where he, the rich man, was in torment... He looked up and he saw Abraham far away. That's the separation. That's the outside. That's the chasm that is there with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him. And notice what the the rich man says. Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this flame. This It's an incredibly enlightening story when you look at the rich man. Does the rich man ever repent? Does he ever feel sorry for his sin? Does he ever ask for mercy? He doesn't respond in that way. He's he's in a place of torment. He's burning up in fire. And he doesn't want a bucket. He doesn't want a barrel. He just wants a little tip of, of water on his tongue because he's in agony in this flame. And notice what he does. Father Abraham, send Lazarus. He hasn't changed one bit. Even in Hades, even in hell, he sees Lazarus as some kind of servant boy to him. He hasn't changed. His heart hasn't changed. He's still the same person on the inside. He's just in a place, and there's no sense of repentance, no sense in desire to change who he is on the inside. Hell is a place of separation. It's a place of darkness. It's a place of bloom. It's a place that you don't want to go. Hell is outside. Hell is a place of torment. It's a place of darkness. And number three, verse 13 teaches this. this. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a verse 13. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think there's two things here. Weeping has the idea of, I think some people are going to be really sorry. Oh, I thought I was there. I, 
I, I thought I, I believed and trusted in Jesus. There's going to be weeping. There's going to be this sorrowful expression of guilt and remorse. The, the other side is this idea of gnashing of teeth. And, and I always used to think that, well, you know what? Everyone's going to be regretful and everyone's going to be, be just so, so sorry to go there. But the idea of gnashing of teeth has this thought. There are some people there, it doesn't matter, they do not want to acknowledge who God is and what he's done for us and his righteous standard for the way that we would live our lives. They want absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. I remember being at a youth camp many, 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 many years ago. And there was a young man who was there and we were having this conversation. And he just simply made this comment, I hate God. I took me back, shocked. I hate God. You know, he's not any different than Christopher Hitchens, the atheist writer who passed away years ago. And before he passed away, he, he made it absolutely clear that he would not have a deathbed conversion. So when I die, don't let people say that I have had a deathbed conversion because it is not going to happen. I will not have a deathbed conversion. Some people go into eternity, and what are they doing? They are shaking their fists at God, saying, no, no, no. I believe that's what it means. Weeping of gnashing of teeth. Revelation chapter 22 is an interesting verse. Notice what it says. It says, let him who does wrong continue to do wrong, and to him who is vile continue to do vile. Even when a person is spending eternity away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of the power, there is still this inside of them that wants to continue to do wrong. There's this rebellion, this gnashing of teeth, this is saying, I'm not going to submit to the very, very will of God. That's the way the Bible describes what it means to perish. I don't know how you imagine hell, but I, I imagine it this way. I mean, I, we know what the Bible says. I imagine it in one, one aspect in, in this way. I love to hear music. I love it when people sing. You know, when, when people go to a concert, have you ever been to a concert and watch people sing? And, and they're singing along with the song, and they're, they're, they're singing at the top of their voice, and there's this power that's going on. It's a secular concert or, or a worship. There's this singing along, and people are, are shouting out, and they're responding to this person who's singing. I liken hell to the fact that God has given some people an absolutely beautiful and wonderful voice, the voice to sing and move people. And yet in hell, they're not going to have the opportunity to ever use what God has gifted them with to be able to respond in a way that other people would follow. I don't know how you imagine it, but it's not a very very kind and loving place. And we hear people say it all the time, you know, well, we're just going to party together in hell. That's what we're going to do. It is such a flip way. I used to say that. It is such a disrespectful and flip way to think of where you would spend eternity, that not only you're going to, to live the way that you want to now and not acknowledge anything of God, but you're going to choose how you're going to live in eternity in a place called hell. We're very, very flip with it. So to perish, John 3.16, to perish means to go to a place of eternal punishment, outside darkness, eternal in nature. So the second question I want to deal with is this. How does perishing swear with God's love? In other words, why would a good God create or even allow such a place to exist? Why would, 
why would God create this place? Angels would go there, created so the angels would go there after they rebelled against him. But, but why would God create a place like this? I think there's a couple of reasons. Let me just walk through a couple of them. First of all, hell is necessary because human dignity demands it. And this is what I mean. Human dignity demands it. The Bible says that you and I are created in the very image of God. We bear the image of God, the abago day of God. God created us in his image. And because we are created in the very image of God, there is a sense of responsibility. There's a sense of accountability. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. It is appointed for man to die once, and after this comes what? It comes judgment. In other words, we're going to stand before a holy God, and we must give an account for the way that we live. Listen, life is incredibly beautiful precious because we bear the image of God. James says when you curse someone, you're cursing someone who bears the very, very image of God. You committed murder. Psalm 139 talks about the wonder and the beauty of God's creation. It says this, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. I know them full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Life is incredibly precious. It's a gift that God gives us. And you and I and how we live is absolutely important. We are responsible. We are accountable to how God would have us to live our lives. And we just can't simply say, I'm going to do it the way that I want to. You know, I've told you when I began this series, I've been reading a book, and the name of the book is called The Anatomy of Deconversion. And what it means is this, the people who've grown up in church and they've walked away from faith, they walked away, and, and one of the ways that they've walked away is because they cannot embrace this idea that a good and loving God would send people to hell. It's a very, very difficult and challenging thing. And as I began to read the book, those who've walked away and kind of written off their faith, they come to this place where they, they now have, they're now in a place where if God is not the creator of everything and God is not the creator of their life, they don't have meaning and purpose in life. Almost every person that this researcher talked to, when they threw out God as the creator, found out that all of a sudden I have no meaning and purpose in life. And it was devastating to them. And now they're trying to figure out what gives them meaning and purpose in life. And if you don't have meaning and purpose in life, in other words, there's no day of reckoning coming in front of you. And what the Bible simply reminds us is this, that that God created us. In his image, we bear the very, very image of God, and and we will one day, because life is an incredible gift, we will stand before him, and we will give an account for our life, the way that we lived. The book of Ecclesiastes says this, he has set eternity in in our hearts, in the hearts of all people. Hell is necessary because of human dignity and the fact that we're created in the image of God. Second reason why I believe hell is necessary is because of this justice demands it. Don't we want justice? Of course we do. And what has been in the news the last three, four weeks? This, this gal by the name of Gabby uh, Pentito, whatever. It's been all over the news. And what are people crying out for? They're crying out for justice. Don't our hearts cry out for justice? When we've been dealt with in a wrong way, don't we want justice to be done? 
Of course we do. We want everything to be fair, and life is not fair. And what God does is says, listen, you're going to be accountable for your life. You're going to be responsible for the way that you live. And there is right and wrong, and I am the very definition of right and wrong. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And as we embrace him and look to who he is and what he would have for us, we find out the way that we're supposed to live our lives. It's a universal sense of what is right and wrong in life, and we want that to know that everything is going to be the way that God would have it. There is justice in the world. The reason for this is because when we feel deep inside and we see things that are going wrong, we want justice to prevail. We want it to work out. The problem is this. We tend to be the example or the model or the standard for justice. I become the standard. Well, I'm, I'm not as bad as all of those people over there, so there's no doubt that I'm, I'm going to be okay. We become the standard of what is right and wrong and what is moral in life. But it's not what the Bible says. As we looked at last week, the Bible says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, there's something deep down inside of us that's wrong and that's broken. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus said, you know where sin comes from? It's not from the outside. It comes from here right here, in the heart of a human being. And that's where it's at. There's sin in the heart of a human being, and it causes us to rebel, and it causes us to want our own way, and it causes us to reject him, and it causes us to walk away. Nicodemus, go back to John chapter 3. Remember how John chapter 3 begins with Nicodemus? Nicodemus, by the way, you must be born again. In other words, you need to go through a a spiritual transformation. You are a religious leader. You are a rabbi. You are a teacher. You're one of the top. You know about God's righteousness. You know about God's standards. You know all about that. Even you must go through a spiritual transformation. You must be born again because sin lies deep within us, and we rebel against him. And there needs to be that transformation on the inside. Hell is necessary because justice demands it. Finally, hell is necessary because love demands it. You have the the attributes of God. You have the holiness of God. You have the perfection of God. You have the wonder of God. You have the beauty of God. And God says, will you love me? Will you love me? In other words, God says, you have the freedom to choose the way that you want to live your life. I'm not going to force you. I'm not going to coerce you. I'm not going to demand you but you have the freedom out of love to live your life any way that you want. You're going to be accountable. You're going to be responsible. But you're going to have the freedom to do that. When I was in seventh grade, um, there was a gal by the name of Megan O'Donnell, and I had a crush on this girl. I mean, I was seventh grade. This is my first crush. And and I really, really liked this, this gal. Never forget her name, Megan O'Donnell. Didn't matter what I did. I couldn't get the time of day with her. I couldn't get her to like me. I couldn't get her to talk to me. And she just probably thought I was a goofball, and I get it, you know. So what do I do? Do I pursue her? Do I write letters to her? Do I call her on the phone? Do I bug her? Do I badger her? Do I stand outside her, her door? Do I go to her house, knock on the door, and say, Megan, are you there? Can you do-? do I try and coerce her? Do I get to a point where I finally say, I'm going to kidnap you and take you so that you will be with me and you will love me? Is that love? No. 
Love demands freedom. And God gives us a measure of freedom. He says, listen, you're going to have the opportunity. You've been created in the very image of God. There's this thing called sin, and you're going to have every opportunity to respond to me. And out of love, because I love you, I'm going to give you the opportunity to live your life. But at the end of the day, you're going to be responsible for the choices that you made. God, because he loves us and he cares for us, gives us a measure of freedom to act and live the way that we should. Doesn't love require a choice? Don't I want to know that my wife chose me? She loves me, that she cares for me? Love demands a choice. And God is the one who gives us that choice. And it doesn't mean we can live the way that we want and get a free pass and think that it doesn't matter how I live, I'm going to end up in heaven. I just need to do the right things. Many years ago, um, uh, King um, Larry King did an interview with Pastor John MacArthur, a Catholic priest, a Muslim scholar, and a Jewish rabbi. And the topic was the next world and how do you get there. And the first question that Larry King asked was this, what happens when you die? John MacArthur responded. You can be sure that he responded in the right way. And then the Jewish rabbi said this. Jewish rabbi said this. Admission to that world, the, the other world, heaven, is based upon righteous conduct and not based on any specific religion. A righteous person of any religion and a righteous person may, in fact, be irreligious. And King said, you mean an atheist? And the man said, he would be granted it because it is determined by our deeds. In other words, it doesn't matter that, that God's in heaven and Jesus is heaven and he provided sacrifice and that, that, that heaven, Revelation chapter 4 and 5, um, Isaiah uh, chapter 6, it's not just the fact that there is worship in heaven and Jesus at the throne and everyone is falling at their feet in worship. The fact is this, you can do whatever you want. You don't even have to believe God. You can be disliking of God and you automatically get a free pass to heaven. And I think that's the way that people believe nowadays. It doesn't matter what you believe. We're just going to carry on. You know, a, a biker passes away and he's biking away in heaven. And a hiker passes away and he's hiking away in heaven. You know how we do all that. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, listen, we're responsible for the actions that we make and nobody gets a free pass. We need to embrace John 3.16 and who Jesus is and we need to believe and trust him for who he is and what he went for us. It's not enough to perform righteous and good deeds. And by the way, how do you know and how long and hard do you have to work before you get there? Peter Kreft, this theologian, said something really interesting. And I believe he hits the nail on the head of where we're at with this. Why would a good God allow people to go to hell? And notice what he says. He says this, Those who do not wish to love God must be allowed not to love him. And those who do not want him to, those who do not want to be with God must be allowed to be separated from him. What God does is this. He says, you don't want me? I'm going to give you what you want. I'm going to give you what you want. Romans chapter 1, I'm going to turn you over. I'm going to turn you over. I'm going to withdraw all these blessings from you. I'm going to turn you over, and I'm going to give you what you want. This is the choice that you have made. See, the, the opposite of that is simply to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to respond in who he is and this free offer of salvation that you and I have from him. John 3.16 teaches us that there is a way to get out of perishing. God provided the way himself by coming to earth, walking on this earth, 
doing all of these wonderful, incredible miracles, and then offering himself as a sacrifice for sin so that you and I can be reconciled to a holy God and live forever with him. To the thief on the cross, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. Even the thief on the cross, go back and read Luke chapter 23, even the thief on the cross recognized there was something wrong in his life and in his last minute reconciled himself to a holy God. Last minute. There's a Disney movie out, and the name of the movie is Cruella. And uh, I didn't realize it was a, it's a prequel to the, uh, the Dalmatian things, 101 Dalmatians. There's an interesting song, and the name of the song is called Cruella. And this is kind of the intro. This is the prequel. Let me just read the intro, and then I want to read some of the lyrics of the song. Now, this is a Disney song. Estella Miller is the creative child with a talent for fashion, but she has a cruel streak. Um, leading her mother, Catherine, to nickname her Cruella. After a tragic series of circumstances, Estella finds herself as an orphan on the streets of London. She tries to be good, and she is befriended by a fashion designer by the name of Baroness von Hellman. And she ends up embracing her wicked side to become the raucous and revenge-bent Cruella. Now, this is the song. Let me just give you the lyrics of the song. Cruella de Vil, Cruella de Vil, She's born to be bad, so run for the hills. Cruella de Vil, Cruella de Vil, the fear in your face, it gives me a thrill. Who wants to be nice? Who wants to be tame? All of your good guys, they are all the same. Original, criminal, dressed to kill, just call me Cruella de Vil. Call me crazy, call me insane, but you're stuck in the past and I'm ahead of your game. Verse 3, a life lived in penance It just seems a waste, and the devil has much better taste. I tried to be sweet. I tried to be kind, but I feel much better now that I'm out of my mind. Well, there's always a line at the gates of hell, but I go right to the front because I dress this well. Rip it up, leave it all in tatters. Beauty is the only thing that matters. The fabric of your little world is torn. Embrace the darkness and be reborn. That's, that's, a, that's a Disney song. And it's kind of passing this idea of, of evil and, and things that are, are deep inside of us, like sin. And we're just going to stand in line, and beauty's the only thing. And, and are we so flip about the afterlife? Are we so flip about this? This is a children's song. And the Bible takes this idea of heaven and hell very, very seriously. And we should take it seriously. It should break our hearts. So... Here we are. Let me just draw this to a conclusion. There is a thing called perishing. John 3.16 says to believe in Jesus and who he is and what he's done. There is a responsibility for the way that you and I live our lives. Love, justice demands it. Uh, Human dignity, accountability demands it. So so where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? I want to just draw this home in a couple of ways. Number one, you and I are called to contend for the faith. In other words, John 3.16 reminds us of something, that we, you and I, have an opportunity to live in a certain way. And, and if you are not embracing who Jesus is and what he's done for your life, my, my simple request to you would be this, repent. Turn to Jesus. 
Throw yourself on the mercy of King Jesus and believe and trust in him, life, death, burial, and resurrection, who he is and what he would have for your life. In other words, the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. And what we want to do is we want to continue to build on the life of Jesus and who he is and the fact that we will spend eternity with him. That, that the Bible says that, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. I have the opportunity every day to minister and serve and give my life away in such that people will see and embrace Jesus. Listen, if you're not trusting in Jesus, today is the day of salvation, today is the day of deliverance. Second responsibility that we have is this. Are you grateful for God's grace in your life? For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourself. Are you, are you grateful for God's grace in your life that he's saved you from a place called hell? and he's brought you into the kingdom of his son that you will for, live forever and ever with him. Do you embrace that? Or are we so wrapped up in the here and now in my life here that we're not looking, contemplating, anticipating a life with Jesus in the future? Am I seeking the things of the kingdom or seeking the things of my own life? The Bible says this, that if I'm believing and trusting in Jesus, the, the spirit of God has sealed me for the day of redemption. I'm sealed in who Jesus is. Embrace that? You look around and see people that you love and care about because of your faith and your trust in Jesus? Number three is this. How many of you know unbelievers? We all do, don't we? We all do. Some of them are in our family. And you and I have the privilege, the responsibility to live in such a way that people see Christ in us, the hope of glory. And we need to pray for other people. We need to pray for those around us. We need to ask God to open doors, Colossians chapter 4, open doors so that we can speak the very mystery of Christ or to live in such a way with integrity, being able to answer the hard questions in life about heaven and hell, about the Bible, about Jesus, about pain and suffering. All those are hard questions in life. But God provides the answers in his word. And the last thing is this, that you and I are challenged to be bold witnesses, to be courageous witnesses, to be bold witnesses for him, to have courage in the face of all the difficulties and challenges of life to live for him. Are we doing that? One of the prayers of my life this past year has been that, God, let me be bold. Let me have courage. Let me have the ability to speak for you in the midst of difficulties and challenges of life and all of the world and this chaos is reigning out there. Allow me to be bold for who you are. We are ambassadors for Christ. Second Corinthians talks about, and it says, we beg you, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. There is this idea of you and I going before people and saying, will you respond to the call of the gospel and turn your life over to Jesus? That's where we find ourselves. John 3.16 says this, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whosoever believes in him, will not perish, but have eternal life. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Father, we thank you for the way out. And Father, I pray that uh, I've not been clear that your spirit in line with your word would make it clear uh, the understanding of, of who you are, what you've done for us, and ultimately you've provided a way for us to know you, to embrace you, to be forgiven of our sin. Father, I ask that you guide and direct us, that you would lead us, that you would speak to us, that you would teach us this morning. 
And I ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.